Hey guys, welcome to the 89th episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, storytelling, and directing. I'm Oren Kaplan. And I'm Matt Enlow. Today we're diving into a pile of listener questions. We've got some voicemails, we've got some emails, we're talking about managers, we're talking about moving to Los Angeles, we're talking about at what age it's too late to start your career. It's all over the gamut, but it's all really interesting stuff, and I can't wait to jump into it. So before we get into our listener questions, we wanted to tell you guys that Matt and I are planning to do a meetup slash live podcast recording. We are still figuring out the venue and the date and everything, but we'd love to get some feedback on if anyone would be interested in joining us in something like that, if that's something that you guys would be into. I think it would be a great place to network, to meet each other, and uh, you know, to find out what everyone has going on. Yeah, I mean, every once in a while we'll get a note like, hey, we should do a meetup, hey, we should do a meetup. And the end of the year is coming up. We always do our panel episode where we bring back some of our favorite guests from the previous year and have a little bit more of a loose party atmosphere anyway. So I thought, well, let's go ahead and do that as a live show. That sounds really fun. So um, let us know if you're excited about that, if you're into that. Um, certainly, you know, we want to make sure that we're accommodating the right amount of space, but also that we're not renting out uh, Radio City Music Hall for um, the six of you that are going to be there. Yeah, so if, if that sounds like something you'd be interested in, just please tweet at us at JustShootItPod, or you can email us, JustShootItPod at gmail.com, and let us know that you'd be down for a meetup in L.A. around the end of the year. Details are forthcoming. Can't wait to see you guys. Um, I was just really curious, Matt, about what you've been working on lately. Yeah, man. Well, as we talked about, this is kind of the end of the year. So I've got a few tiny little job prospects, but for the most part, I'm into hibernation mode. So I'm uh, working on some spec stuff, which is really fun. I think it's the time of the year that it's really seductive to just like go to movies. I got that movie pass. I did oh, yeah. see Justice League in the middle of the afternoon. That's how I spent my day. And it was great. It was like, it's an, that's an argument for freelancing and not being worried about where your next paycheck is coming from because like i got to relax i spent the morning writing i got a coffee with a friend i'm gonna do that again tomorrow movie pass bro yeah it's uh i mean i'm sure people know about this but this time of year is very weird people are already like it's 2018 yeah Yeah. like yeah let's do it next year (laughs) and it's really tough for freelance people like us because you kind of uh, like black friday is like the basically we don't make any money after black friday yeah yeah so you better be in the black by black friday and also it's unlikely that we will make money before sundance is over which is mid-january i spoke to my commercial reps the other day i was like yeah i actually might be gone over the holidays but it's fine nobody shoots commercials then and they're like no it's the opposite like everyone's trying to spend up their marketing budgets right that said i've got nothing planned commercial wise for the rest of the year yeah if nothing's like in the hopper by now it's not gonna be because it it is true like you know the last few things i'm doing are like branded jobs and stuff so it's like hopefully i get one if not not a big deal but like we're at the end of that cycle so in january when things are starting up again we won't be getting a phone call for a while so that's why it's like this is the perfect time to do a music video you don't make any money on and it's super weird for a band that you like or, you know, like I said, I'm going to shoot a couple shorts um, just because, like, all my friends are not doing anything and, like, it's going to be fun. Cool. What yeah. shorts? Just some weird ones. Yeah, cool. weird, like, minute-long shorts. Yeah, and it's obviously a great those. time to write. Yeah. If you can, 
be not stressed out about not making money for long enough to like clear your mind. Last week, I was just underwater, had a had a rough week in terms of career stuff, just like uh, a pile of small no's that kind of, you know, was a little uh, overwhelming. And uh, this week, I'm back and it's not a big deal. Optimistic. Optimistic, ready to roll, write, like writing every day. It's been great. Cool. So life is good. What about you, Warren? What have you been working on lately? I'm, well, I'm also winding down and it's actually like a really fun time in LA, the winter. That's our daughter's named Winter and we named her after this time in LA, which is like a very introspective, retrospective time Mm -hmm. in in the film industry because everything's so quiet. And I don't know if you noticed, but like my street had so many parking spots. Oh my God. It was incredible. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Parking gets better too. People have already like left LA. Man, it's so great. Like going to see the movies in the winter is the Yeah. And it's like Oscar season and all that stuff. But I, uh, I just shot these kind of, they're like commercials last week, but they're supposed to look like vlogs and it was fun. I think they came out really good, but I kind of have this like frustration a little bit because the client really, and a lot of the people, the whole production team kind of felt like a vlog needs to be kind of look crappy, like shot on a crappy mm-hmm. camera and like with the zooms and things are out of focus. And, and I, I kind of feel like I'm the only person that actually watches vlogs from all the people. And that is not, that's how, how it works vlogs are made nowadays. No, like yeah, that's not how Logan like Paul shoots his vlogs. And, yeah. yeah, that's not how the makeup hall people do theirs. It's sure. not how Casey Neistat does his. And there are people do have lights, and which is fine. We we only had like a couple lights too when we shot it. But now there's we're getting these notes of like these look too too nice, in which they they don't look that nice. And their suggestion is like do some digital zooms and try to like make them look more messed up. Hmm. Just frustrating because what I was pitching from the very beginning is like, let's make them super cutty. Like vlogs mm-hmm. to me is like a modern vlog has a lot of jump cuts. It's like right. cut out all the fat and just like the best parts, you know, and, right. totally. or, or do multiple f- four bad takes and then a good take, you know, like, like the editing can be part of the rhythm of what makes it fun. Right. Absolutely. But crappy camera work and crappy lighting is not, not what defines not the thing. modern vlog. Yeah, yeah. Unless they're like, handheld and out in the field but right. if it's supposed to be like this is where i do my vlogging because because i was really worried look there's this thing where like a brand will come to you and say like hey we want this to feel authentic and like coming really from this person it's a vlog but you have to say i fucking love this crest toothpaste it like makes my teeth so white this is how my teeth look before now look at them and it's like dude People like vlogs because they actually are authentic and they actually are people giving their true opinions and being vulnerable on camera. And that's what makes them appealing. And so when you're saying like shill for a company, but make it as appealing as a vlog, it's it's like a contradiction, you know? So I don't know. I'm running into this thing where the client thinks one thing is what makes a good vlog. and, And I totally disagree with them, you know? Right. Like what makes a good vlog is being real, you know? Right. But when it's a commercial, that's why I always try to make commercials feel like commercials because right. faking them as these vlogs is just... It's just disappointing for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. It's funny. You talk about vlogs and I had an epiphany in Justice League, actually. there's a. <clears throat> it's not a spoiler to say that there's a tiny bit at the very beginning where it's supposed to be iPhone footage. And I've seen, you know, you see iPhone foot, quote unquote iPhone footage in movies and TV all the time. 
and I've done plenty where it's supposed to be from the POV of a phone. And I realized if I'm ever going to shoot iPhone footage ever again, and it's meant to be iPhone footage, shoot I'm, I'm going to shoot it on an iPhone. I'm going to have the operate, the character operate it. And I'm not going to use any app or anything like that. I'm going to let it literally float in and out of focus. If that's what like, or autofocus the way it does, I'm going to have it do all of the color correction. It does like, I'm not setting exposures or any of that shit. Just let it be an iPhone. And I get that. You know, and you know who does like, I don't know if you saw the OA, but the opening sequence is all kind of iPhone footage. It's really well done and probably was really shot on an iPhone. But the a vlog is like, not that. Yeah, yeah, they shoot on 5Ds and 70s. And yeah, with, with the ring light and like perfect lighting and they they figure out. They yeah, dial like Michelle Fan and Anna Kana and all these guys are like, they, yeah, yeah. their stuff looks good. I hate to break it to you, brands. <laughs> yeah, they've dialed in exactly how to make themselves look awesome. Yeah, and by the way, those people are like amazing editors, and they know how to use music yeah. and like. It's I'm like just making a big stink face. Yeah, I think that we're both in this world where we are, are faking YouTube videos, faking YouTube videos, and also come from a place where we respect the skill and talent that it takes to execute a career like that. Right. And it's so annoying. Like, even though that's not what we do, it's really like condescending and shitty to be like, well, make it look worse because that's what these dumb teenagers do. Yeah. It's 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 when they blame us for how it looks, for why it doesn't feel real. Yeah. When I truly believe it's really the fault of the content, you know, the script, which we wrote the script, by the way, but, but, (laughs) but they told us what to write it about. So anyway. Ultimately, I think they'll they'll be pretty good for commercials. So the other interesting thing is we interviewed a writer for the Toronto show, Warigami. Um, and uh, he sent it. We read some sample scripts of his and I read a feature that he wrote and it was a 61 page dra- drama, thriller, drama, mystery movie. Um, and the very last page like changed the entire perspective uh, of the main character in a way that Mad Men, you know, do you see the Mad Men pilot? Mm-hmm. Um, you sure. You know, he's uh Don Draper is this guy. He's this like ladies right. man. He's an right. amazing ad guy. He and has this girlfriend. He has this mysterious past. He has a mysterious past, but no, but the very end he goes home to his suburban wife and kids and they mm. play him as like the most single bachelor in the world. Yeah. I guess that it's the juxtaposition between right. the New York Manhattan life and the suburb life. And then you really, yeah, yeah. And it's, and that's the whole show is about that. It's about this man that is selling you the glitz and the glamour. He's selling to the suburban people. You know, I I mean, that show works on like so many, it's like Shakespeare. Like I think we're interpret, we're getting more out of it than the writers even intended. You know, the point is that the very last page is this twist that I didn't see coming at all. But once you know it, you're like, Oh, that's what all these things meant. And that's what you were setting up. And like, all the setups were so organic to the story that they didn't feel random or setups. They just felt natural. So I asked the writer, I was like that, you know, how, like, when did you come up with this twist? And he was like, Oh, that was like the first thing I knew I wanted to do a show about this type of character, Mm -hmm. but I didn't want to reveal this about the character until the end. So I wrote backwards from that. And it's just the thing I keep trying to do, but it's, I find it really difficult is to like, have an element of your story that you don't give away until way later into the story or, or how to not uh, telegraph it 
also that's really tricky because yeah. you want to foreshadow things but you don't want to make them obvious but i have such a problem and i know it's kind of like a beginner writer problem to be honest of like having a great idea for a setup without much of a payoff mm-hmm. and like the artful writer knows the payoff and then works backwards to get the setup yeah i mean i think there's a lot of it's tricky to learn how to heighten things properly you know like understanding a world and a premise and a theme and those ideas can all be really apparent to you but also like how do you make a plot that works in that world and with those themes and how do you make it pay off all of that stuff is it's it's fundamentals but i think it's always going to be the challenge it's always the thing that people have to go back to i'm going to do i think during our slow winter just as an exercise for myself i'm going to try to write some log lines are just kind of synopses of a few different projects I'm working on and try to think of the twist and how to work backwards from there. Yeah. I mean, this is the time to build out that slate so that you have stuff for next year, basically. So we're going to talk about listener questions, but I don't want to say one kind of interesting thing is that I went to the adaptive party, um, you know, Kate Grady, who was a guest on our show that her company hosted a party. But so I was at this party and the cool thing was, is I ran into Nathan Kaywood, who was one of our listeners and he was there because he had won a logline competition on, I think it was through project Greenlight or something Whoa. um, to go be at that party and to meet all the executives. He had a meeting with part of winning that competition as he had sure, a meeting sure. with Kate and Steven they're at adaptive to pitch them some stuff. It, it was really cool running into him there and kind of, I, I heard a lot of like people listening to our podcast at the, at the party. And, um, I don't know. I think there, there's something kind of, we're growing like a little community here and with just shoot it. And if there's one like actionable thing that, that w- hopefully we can offer the community is, is kind of some connections. And, and I don't know, I just, I just kind of felt like at that party that f- it was the first time I felt like there was this like just shoot it community of people that listen to the show and that are getting things out of it. And we've started connecting people to each other in some way. There was that actor there that was on your show that had listened to the Melissa Hunter episode mm-hmm. and had, had gleaned some information from it and talked to you about it. I don't know. I, I, it was just exciting to kind of see that the podcast hopefully is is being mildly helpful to some people. <laughs> that, that's all I'm saying. Um, so with that, let's jump into uh, these listener questions. So first we have an email from Adrian B. Adrian says... Love the last podcast, really informative about the realities of moving to LA. My background is that I moved to London to become an AD, loved working over there, but the wages were appalling, so I moved into IT. Ten years later, I'm still trying to break in back home in Melbourne, Australia. The industry is so small that I want to move to LA, but I'm concerned that age will be a barrier for employment. I'm turning 40 this year, and I want to spend my 40s in LA working my ass off, maybe in crew first, um, even uh, working as an extra. And writing, what tips do you have for middle-aged people starting out? I'm 50-50 right now about staying in Australia to keep busting out little films or podcasts or take the leap, assuming I can get in the country uh, on a 457 or other. So from Adrian Breit B. Well, so there's a couple things to, to break down here. So I think actually the good news is there's not a ton of... Well, I don't want to misspeak here because I don't really know what I'm talking about. But I haven't found... I haven't witnessed any age discrimination. Are you out of your mind? Are you, I, in a crewing world? 
No, I guess it's not. It, well, which it is depends. what we're talking about. Yeah. If you had to hire a PA that was like 19 and crazy eager um, or Versus someone that was someone in their 40s. Yeah. That you felt a little maybe guilty asking them to like like yelling at them for, to take the trash out. or something. I mean, not that that is something that happens, but there is. I don't know. I, I've always had like felt uncomfortable if I if there was sure. a PA that was like my parents age which i i mean adrian is much younger than my parents but if there was hypothetically asking them to like go get me a make sure. me a coffee i'd feel weird about it i don't i don't want to be naive about it because i think certainly that is a factor right there are going to be people who are are going to be reticent to hire you for lower level positions at that age sometimes that that that's probably a thing because they because yeah, oftentimes it, those jobs are physical and and because people have a bias of like just when you think of what a, a PA or an entry level position is, oftentimes people just imagine someone young, and that's like a bias that people I think actively would like to overcome, but also is is a reality of what we're dealing with, right? Right. That's rough. That's that's crappy to say. I think the other part of that equation also is that like um, lifestyle wise, it's a lot easier to you know, make these appalling wages like you experienced in London um, because your typically your expectations for and your standard of living is lower. Right. But like, right. Which is part of, I think maybe why you hire a PA that's just out of college or just out of high school, even right. you don't feel that bad paying them minimum wage. But if you're hiring someone that has a family, it makes you feel uncomfortable to even ask them to stay all night, which right. is something that's something that you oftentimes have to do. That is, that is the job. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, just to define the positive version, I think in writing, you know, people, you don't put your age on a script. Mm -hmm. um, if you have an interesting voice uh, as a filmmaker, if you make something, an awesome short film, an awesome spec commercial, an awesome trailer or whatever, a feature that you've self-financed, if it's good, it doesn't matter. Like right. the guy that wrote The King's Speech, I think he was like in his 60s or something. He had right. been writing for a long time, but he had never really written a hit and um, and, he, and then and that came out struck there's a there's and I would say also like once you're past entry level yes. you see a very broad range of ages especially the higher up you get you know like in TV yeah. your department heads are all in their 40s at the kind of youngest really look there's no secret that you have to be willing to eat shit when you first move to Hollywood and, and, and Adrian is ready and right. if you are down for that, it doesn't matter how old you are, but just know that the people next to you will be like half your age. Yeah. I, um, I, so it's, it's more about you than it is about other people. I absolutely. Think. I wonder if, I think the question really to ask yourself, Adrian is like, because you're, it sounds like you're a motivated guy and a self-starter and making a good living, right? If there's a reality where you can just make things on your own in Australia and you'd be happy doing that and it can have a, a higher quality of life as a result, that's a thing to consider. For sure. But I think you can also leverage not being from L.A. So this guy, Ryan, that was just here the other day, he came from Melbourne also. Yeah. Um, he, I think, is getting a deal with Netflix off his trip to L.A. and he's also contemplating the same thing as Adrian, whether he should move here when he has a family and four kids, you know, um, right. but he kind of made his name and discovered his voice and became a filmmaker in Australia where I think 
things were like locations and extras and those types of things were a little more accessible and he had a network of people he knew. So I guess my advice would be, uh, you know, Adrian says, do you have any tips for middle-aged people starting out is try to make stuff, you know, the same advice Mm -hmm. I'd give anyone, but try to kind of find your voice. And I think when you're at your age, which by the way is like my age as well, um, finding your unique perspective on things becomes a Mm -hmm. little more important, especially if you're Caucasian, I think (laughs) like no one in Hollywood is saying like, we need 40 year old white guys to come here and tell us what they think about everything. But I think if you have an interesting take on being Australian in the U S like, uh, that show catastrophe, right. It's about a British, you know, but they're middle-aged people and, I was not familiar really with that, any of the, the cast from that show, but it was a huge hit on Amazon. Boy, I love that show. Right. But you could imagine someone like an Adrian writing and creating that show. Like, you don't, yeah. n- you don't need those. Well, I guess they made the show for themselves, right? Uh, no, it was co-financed between uh, Amazon Prime and BBC. Right. But I mean, the uh, Rob Delaney created the show. Yeah, but I think through a pitch with Amazon Prime. Well, regardless, yeah. there's you know there's there's a show here on Bravo called The Girlfriend's Guide to Divorce that did really well that was created by a woman in her mid forties that just wrote about her life. It, it, here's the here's the truth, Adrian. You already know this. It's going to be hard, just like it's hard for everybody in Hollywood. It's always going to be hard, and if you know it and you're okay with that, then go for it. And it sounds like that's the case. Um, if you can imagine a reality where you could be happy doing something besides this, that's okay. And maybe there's a way to split the difference, but you know, if you want to do it, man, go do it. Jump in. And in terms of moving to LA or not moving to LA, like come spend a month here. Yeah. I do not come spend the winter months here because it's really slow, but come like March, you know, April, May, and just, you know, save up some money and just come with zero expectations and just meet people, you know, set up, try to set up as many meetings as you can um, over email and then see if, if it seems see, right. For see you. if it's a fit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for writing, Adrian. Okay. Next we got Ben Caro, who's actually a guest on our podcast. What up, Ben? He says, dear gents, I just listened to the pitching episode with Kate Grady from Adaptive. It was very helpful, but I was left with a question. What about the pilot? I might've missed it, but I didn't hear that word come up once. Has that gone to the wayside in favor of more informal pitches and polished decks? I was under the impression that if you had a solid idea, you might include a deck as well as a tightly crafted pilot. I had an idea for a show. Should I focus only on the pitch and forget the pilot until after there's development interest? Thanks, guys. Yeah, so Ben, I think um, you hit the nail on the head. I I can say with absolute certainty that the follow-up question after you pitch your show and people love your idea and they love the world and they love the story engine and all this stuff and you pitch it, they say, great, what can we read? So having a, a nice tight pilot to follow up with is going to be pretty imperative. Um, I'm pitching two things right now. One has a pilot, one doesn't. And it's I'll tell you what, it's great to be able to slide that PDF over to them as a follow-up email. Um, that being said, you don't have to have something written in order to sell a show, especially in digital, which is part of the magic of it right now. But uh, yeah, having having something written is great. And I know this goes unsaid, but it's worth saying that everyone is different that you're pitching to. Kate, when Kate was here and told us about their pitching process, she I remember she said that they tell people to pitch things their manager doesn't want them to pitch. Um, sure. 
So in other words, they're she, like the She's ant- referencing my manager, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure everyone's manager. Shout out Larry. But no, they, well, <laughs> they, um, like they, yeah, they want like the anti-pitch. So them saying that almost implies that like they want you to pitch to them differently than you would normally pitch in like a regular Hollywood room. Or what material you're bringing up, right? So in that example, it was like, oh, I had some straightforward pitches of like, you know, this is what I would take to ABC. Um, and then I had the things that only an idiot would bring up to a- ABC and they wanted the idiot pitches basically. Right. But you do hear these stories of people selling shows off the, off a pilot, great pilot script. 100%. And yeah. I think that definitely still happens, but I think what that episode is about is a little bit more the permission to not have a pilot script mm-hmm. and pitch a show. I would say this is a <clears throat> good guiding principle. The more traditional the room is, the more likely it is that you'll you'll want to have a, a script. Yeah. No matter what, though, they will want some evidence of your um, abilities, your writing. Yeah. So yeah. if you don't have a, a a spec for this or a pilot for this specific show, they will want to read a sample that you can't get around. Exactly. So thanks, Ben. I hope we answered your question. Now let's go to a voicemail. Hello, this is Andy, and I'm a writer-director based in Georgia. Uh, first of all, I love listening to your podcast, along with my film school experience listening to Just Shoot It has helped me learn much about the industry that I definitely didn't know. My call is I'm wondering about screenwriting competitions. I want to know which ones are reputable and if they're worth putting the time into, if that's a good way to get discovered. Um, all this stuff about screenwriting competition. Anyway, um, again, I'm Andy Williams. Um, my Twitter handle is A-N-D-E-W-I-L-L-I-A-M-S-3. Okay, so that was Andy from Georgia, and she is asking, she's a writer-director from Georgia, and she is asking if screenwriting competitions are worth it, like are worth the trouble if they can get you discovered. I think, I mean, again, Script Notes, uh, our favorite podcast, (laughs) does talk about this quite a bit. And the conclusion that they always come to is that there are a handful of screenwriting competitions that matter and all the rest don't. I think the party line for them is... uh, Nichols Fellowship. The the ones you've heard of, so Nichols. Austin Film Festival. Austin Blacklist. ATX, right? Yep, uh, Blacklist. And then I'd lump in any sort of... um, any fellowship with from a network that you've heard of. So like ABC, Fox, Warner Brothers, there's a bunch of fellowships. Nickelodeon has one. Those right. are all worth it. And um, the Sundance Labs, of course. And Sundance Labs, pardon me. I will, if it's any of any interest to Andy, I did uh, win a pilot writing competition with, at Slamdance. Uh, it led to a little bit of interest. And I could tell people, hey, this one, Slamdance, will, will you read it? But I didn't feel like it moved the needle significantly. Aside from us, my writing partner, Julie, and I feeling excited. Feeling great. So I'm going to give two little pieces of advice on top of regurgitating what Script Notes always says, right? I think that there is a little bit of value in winning something that I haven't heard of, right? If you can say, hey, I won this thing, and I can then Google it later, or even not, there is a little bit of something. It's it's not unlike uh, film festivals. Yes, 
there are a bunch of film festivals that you've heard of. And then there are some ones that you're like aware of. And like in my mind being like, Oh, I'm sort of aware of this festival is a big, is a, is a good enough thing, right? I've won awards that people have not heard of. And I mentioned them in conjunction with other awards that they have heard of. But like, there's a, there's a little bit of, um, you know, you're kind of like, it, it's adding to the pile a little bit. So I don't want to be utterly dismissive of, of everything. Um, and also the, the fellowships in particular are really looking for new voices. So not white males basically. Um, and so that I think there's a lot of really great opportunity there. That being said, having good writing samples is invaluable. Like having that is, is the thing. So like, have great writing samples, have great directing samples, you know, submit them to those festivals and those fellowships and those competitions. Um, and if you don't win any and you still like your sample, then you're like most of Hollywood and there's still plenty of room for success. Yeah. And, but I think in general, there isn't a huge equivalency between winning a screenwriting competition and selling a script, yeah. especially with the competitions that we haven't heard of. Yeah, and, and what I will say though, however, those fellowships, I think there's a huge equivalency between yeah, the fellowships, but there are those screenwriting competitions. In so much, yeah, I would say so. Like you write a script and then submit it to those fellowships and then they pick a few and then you interview, I think, as well. But so yeah, like and then you get picked out of a pile to basically be an apprentice. Um, and oftentimes those lead to jobs. Like you're getting staffed much more aggressively than other places. It's a main feeder. So okay, but it's not like the Phoenix Film Festival screenwriting competition. No, no, no. I'm talking about Warner Brothers Fellowship. I'm talking about Nickelodeon's Fellowship. You know, that all of the major networks and studios have a fellowship that those are absolutely worth looking into. Yeah. But if you don't get it or you don't match the criteria for what they're looking for right now, don't worry about it. Most people don't. I, I'm saying don't spend too much money on screenwriting competition fees. <laughs> if, oh, I see. If they're not one of these I, I ones that, that you've heard of. I don't know those fellowship ones even cost any money. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Again, it's like film festivals. Cool. Well, thanks for leaving us a voicemail, Andy. Yeah, That's thanks, awesome. Andy. We love the voicemails because <laughs> it lets our listeners listen to something Isn't other that than nice? us. You hear Andy, right? So why don't we listen to another voicemail? I love it. Let's do it. From another familiar voice. Hey, Matt and Orm is all for sale from Making Movies is Hard. What's up, guys? Um, so I've got a question. This goes back, I don't know, a few episodes. You guys were talking about um, offensive material in short films or in your work and, like, how if you have something pretty offensive that a character is doing or that happens in a movie, then maybe you shouldn't use that as your calling card because people get offended by things. Uh, so <laughs> I made a movie. That's definitely walks the line of offensive, and um, I showed it to a bunch of people, and about, you know, there's always a few people who find it a little offensive. It's got um, nudity, violence against women, and violence against men in it, and uh, yeah, but I have very good reasons for all these things, and it's really like, got a story and a theme that's all really, that all those things are really important in order to get my message across. So I guess my question is, like, if you have a message behind it and something that you feel like is really, you know, important, like, is that okay? Or is it like, if you have to explain it to somebody, 
then, or otherwise they could find it offensive, then maybe it's just bad. I don't know. Anyways, it's kind of like you have to see the movie to know, but I don't know. I just want to ask the question anyways. Uh, thanks for the great, great show. And yeah, my Twitter handle is at AllworkB. Uh, you can also find me at, at Making Movies Is Hard and at MMIH Podcast as well. All right, guys. Okay, cool. So thanks for the question, Alric. Um, yeah, so what Alric is referring to is a few episodes ago, we had talked about uh, seeing like a few videos from various uh, people that we felt were really well done and kind of nicely constructed stories. But uh, in the current climate of Hollywood, they felt a little insensitive and maybe thematically offensive in a way. I, I think also the important thing to point out is that it wasn't necessarily apparent to us that they knew that that was the message or that that's what was coming across. Right, right, right. Yeah, for sure. Um, and so, you know, I think I don't want to be misconstrued. Like there is absolutely nothing, not one single bone in my body that says you should stay away from violence or stay away from. Yeah, this isn't about or, censorship at yeah. all. It's about the awareness of what message you're sending with your film. Yes. And, and your convictions with standing behind that message. Right. It's if something feels gratuitous for the sake of being gratuitous or like cliche or like tropey. Um, if it's like, you know, I think one of the things we'd watched, like the female characters were all housewives. It's, right. it's not that that's offensive in a general sense. And it's, yeah, I'm not offended by housewives. Right. It, it just felt like um, a little that the uh, subtext maybe had, it, like it kind of a sh- it, that it comes from a chauvinistic maybe point of view, um, and, and not necessarily intentional by any chance, but also it, it just felt a little old, you know, like from the fifties, right? Um, it, it, and the product that it was in was not intended, as as far as I could tell, to be like a throwback or homage, you know. Right. Um, Whereas, so Alric's question though is that he's got a pretty intense sounding film. Right. Yeah. And obviously people are very sensitive about this topic right now and, you know, rightfully so and will be for the foreseeable future. So uh, I think there's maybe the subtext of Oren's question is like, oh, no, did I waste my time making a movie that is turning people off? And I think the answer kind of it's still the same. You have to be willing to stand behind the messages of your film and you have to be sure that you understand the messages of your film yeah uh and then if people don't like it that's okay yeah for sure and for Alaric specifically his short film does have i mean it has a violent exchange between a man and a woman and that is totally fine you know it's not like the movie is about like just a man beating up a woman the whole time because we we're showing off how graphic we can make a violent scene you know it's there's reasoning, there's like a juxtaposition, there's shifts in power, there's a reason they're doing what they're doing and whether they're good guys or bad guys, it feels aware. It right. doesn't feel like, you know, it, it just doesn't feel like sophomoric. It feels intentional. So I I don't think, I didn't see any issues with Alric's 
short that being said right like or in your judgment of not being offended is going to be different than mine and is going to be different than plenty of other people so you do need to know right eyes open on this situation there are going to be people who do not agree with the point of view of this movie right and like that is a thing that you are asking for in tackling this sort of material and so um just in general when you're dealing in taboo material and you're you're challenging people's perceptions and questions and dealing with sensitive material, you're going to make people mad. And um, be aware of that. Be prepared for that. Don't let it caught, catch you off guard. And like some people like that. Some people thrive on that. There's really incredible filmmakers, you know, like, do you know Michael Haneke? Do you remember he did yeah, funny yeah. games or oh, like yeah, the, piano yeah. te- the piano teacher, you know, is like just filled with like, a sweet seeming woman doing the most depraved shit you can think of. Um, yeah, funny games. Oh, there's a, this guy's, you know, he's messed up and like happy that I said that. Right. <laughs> right. You know? Um, yeah. And, but, but he knows what he's doing. Right. And is doing it intentionally. And some people like, I would never show my mother a Michael Haneke movie. <laughs> right. If I told my mom that I watched a Michael Haneke movie in film school, she would be like, what the fuck did I waste my money on? Right. And yeah, and I, I think... And just, rightfully so, frankly, you know? For sure. And my thoughts on nudity, just personally, are... It, look, there's movies like the college, you know, frat guy movies, like bro, like the American Pies, sure. where nudity is part of the genre and it it's played lightly. Like, we know mm-hmm. we're doing this to sell tickets or for a good trailer moment or whatever, like... You know, it's self-aware that it's like kind of there for silly reasons. I think where nudity gets weird is if it's gratuitous nudity, but it takes itself seriously. Again, it's going to be an audience thing, right? Because there, I just watched for the first time with my wife uh, just the other night, the Fast and the Furious movies. Mm-hmm. We watched the first one and uh, I was super offended by them actually in a way that that's kind of similar to the American pie movies where it's like, Oh, this is exploitation. We're supposed to pretend that this is all okay, but this is really quite demeaning. Yeah. And just a naked person wouldn't necessarily be offended, offensive to me. Do you know what I mean? Right. Well, in the Meyerowitz stories, there's a lot of nudity. Okay. There's a lot of nudity of a very young woman, (laughs) but it's like, it's funny because she goes to Bard, you know, the Mm -hmm. very liberal arts college. Um, in new England and she makes all these videos in film school where she's like naked (laughs) and the whole time. And it's like, it's gratuitous, but it's like self-aware. I don't know. There's something Mm -hmm. funny about it. And it's like so cliche in a way that it's trying to be, (laughs) um, then I don't know. It's fine. So, you know, it's, I would just show it to someone and be like, Hey, do you think this is too much or too, too more? And, and by the way, if you're, if it's female nudity and your actress is uncomfortable about it, then that might be a sign sure. that it's too much. Same with the male nudity, you know? Um, if your cast is like, oh yeah, this makes sense. This seems tasteful, you know, or it, relatable, or it, like, I understand why this it, you need want nudity here, then go for it, you know? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, just understand what you're making, be willing to stand by it and those ideas, and also listen to people and maybe you were wrong you know like right 
And put yourself in a woman's shoes if you're a man or a man's shoes if you're a woman or, an, you know, just just try to feel how different types of people would react to your thing and just obviously just judge it by that. But again, I don't <laughs> I don't mean to be like politically correct or anything of that nature. I'm not trying to say that that's like what we're going for here. It's just more of like an awareness that there are people watching this other than yourself. Right, you know? and that you have to stand by those ideas and that some people are going to dislike them. Yeah, exactly. Okay, cool. So the next question is from uh, Listener X. We're not going to name him because I don't know if his email was directed at me personally or as a question for the podcast. So we will just refer to him as Listener X, but we thought it was an interesting question regardless. Uh, he is talking to me about the episode where my manager, Jacob, was on. And he says, I recall you left your first manager at some point. Did you only jump ship when you had Jacob lined up? Or did you take a moment to sort of see what's out there before signing with someone else? I have a guy who's interested, seems like a better situation than what I'm coming from, but he's laying on a bit of pressure. So I'm trying to decide whether to jump on it or risk putting him off to pound the pavement a bit. Uh, so basically what listener X is asking is, should you find a new manager before you leave your current manager? I'm assuming the same thing applies to agents and right. lawyers and all that other stuff. Well, it is tricky with managers because a lot of them, most of the reputable ones have a no poaching policy. So they won't real. if you are repped by somebody else, they kind of have like a hands off sort of attitude about the whole thing. Right. It's Which makes things better for everybody and also harder when you want to leave them. Look to me, it's tricky because you hear a lot of actors in these similar situations too. And they're much more reliant on their reps than Matt and I are, I think, as directors. But uh, the reason you would leave your reps, your manager, for instance, is because your manager is not getting you the work that you want. Mm -hmm. So what's the point of staying with them? You know, I, I say just leave them and go find someone new. And if you don't find someone new, then you're in the same situation than you were when you had your manager. Right. Yeah. Unless you feel like having your manager and having their company name on your resume or something is helpful in some way. But honestly, it's rarely that helpful. I would say not to worry about it too much. Um, but yeah, I've never kind of had a backup manager. My previous relationships with managers kind of just fizzled out on their own and uh when i signed with my second manager i emailed my first manager and said just so you know i'm with the new manager we haven't talked for months i'm assuming you don't care but so i let my first manager know and she was like oh great they're great managers congratulations yeah, <laughs> um, yeah they kind of understand the way it works i think yeah so if you haven't talked to your manager in like three months they're not going to be shocked when you tell them you have a new manager <laughs> Uh, if your manager is actively working for you, uh, then it's, you know, you, you should officially leave them before yeah. you start talking to another manager. Uh, but I try to, I don't know if this is right and you tell me, Matt, but I try to give like my reps a chance, like a, like a phone call and say, hey, you know, I haven't gotten any work for a while. Um, what's going on? What can I do to help you get mm -hmm. me work? And if nothing happens like two to three months after that, then I know I've done, I've fine. given them the chance I've put into their mind the fact that I'm, uh, you know, need more from them. And if they can't deliver on it, then that's fine. I'll just find somebody else that can. Look, I mean, I've only had 
a handful of experiences with this and um, I'm lucky that my current manager I'm pretty happy with, you know, um, I get a lot of attention and stuff. So, uh, so I think that you just always want to have those conversations regardless, you know, not from a place of like skepticism or accusation, but more just because like, that's what it takes to nurture a career is to just kind of have sort of, your bigger goals in mind and, and ways in which you can arm them to, to make more work for you. So I don't know if like a hail Mary is necessarily needs to be part of the equation, but honestly, it's such a personal relationship that like, uh, I think everyone, it's, it's like breaking up with someone, you know, you kind yeah. of just like, would you break up with, would you not only break up with someone if you have somebody else lined up? Yeah, probably not. Probably not. Yeah. So well, cool. Okay. Well, luck, hopefully, yeah. Listener X. Hopefully that answers your question. Um, this listener we happen to know is with a very good management company and probably looking to transfer to also a good management company. So I think listener X will be fine no matter what they choose to do. Yeah. But that may be part of, I think those better management companies are the more stringent ones when it comes to poaching and that this person who's like kind of putting the pressure on, I think he's kind of got listener X has a little bit of a I'm sensing a, a um, apprehension apprehension thank you about this manager maybe you should really listen to that regardless of whether you have somebody new or not and we can't say it enough you don't have to have a manager and agent to yep. work in this town yeah well so our final question comes from Diego Castro he says hey Orin and Matt I appreciate the honesty in which you guys talk about the good and the bad of the industry but I do have two bones to pick. One is I'm a professional editor, and you guys haven't talked about post-production nearly enough. Uh, and two, I live in Atlanta, Georgia, and I'm surprised you haven't invited a guest to talk about production in Yollywood. No one really calls it Yollywood, FYI. Uh, he says, you always make a good point about people having to move to LA, but moving to Atlanta has become a viable alternative to anyone looking to get in the industry or advance their careers if they're already in it. I don't want to compare and contrast LA versus Atlanta and say that one is better than the other, but present your listeners with an honest and different perspective. And he says, my wife and I have been making a living here in Atlanta for the last few years and work on commercials, sports, TV shows, behind the scenes, and more. Best. We saw this question and we were planning on talking about it. I, so I actually reached out to Diego for a couple things. Uh, I kind of explain him why we haven't talked that much about post-production, but I thought he made some really good points. And I think we should have, but you know, we've had a ton of editors on, but um, I'd really love to get my friend Adam Mays on. He's a trailer editor mm. and he's done all like every big comedy, like the hangover movies, every big comedy movie you've ever seen the trailer for. He's like cut at least one version of that trailer. And he has really good insights on how to make a good trailer out of a bad movie and a good movie. And, I'm sure I mentioned this on the podcast before, but he told me this really interesting thing once, which is that he said, Oren, you'll be shocked how many movies don't have one line of dialogue in them that says what the movie is about. Um, because as a trailer editor, that's what right. you want. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, they use yeah. a lot of crazy tricks. They bring in, you know, sound alikes, like actors that sound like Bruce sure. Willis or Eddie Murphy or whatever. And Just have like them. under the montage, like, yeah, we fell asleep while we were partying and now we have to figure out what happened. Exactly. Um, so that's a pretty good Zach Galifianakis. Yeah, that was really good. Thanks. Man. Um, so I think uh, he would be a fresh perspective. In general, I think we try to not get too technical on the podcast, talk about 
software or cameras or anything because we think there are way better resources for it. Uh, but yeah, if you guys um, are interested in hearing more technical stuff or post stuff, let us know and we'll bring on uh, those types of guests. We can nerd down a little bit. So uh, the other but, yeah. question, sorry, I'm talking nonstop, man. Um, but the other thing I'd asked Diego and I'll admit I've never been to Atlanta myself. So I'm, I have. It's it's great. It's really charming. I've heard great things. I've heard it can look like any city you want it to look, which is one of the big advantages. And I know so many yeah. DPs and production designers and actors that have gone there and worked on huge Hollywood mm-hmm. movies and films and TV shows and everything. Uh, so I know there's a ton of production there, and it's a great place to shoot. What I'm wondering is how many above the line people originate in Atlanta. And by above the line, I mean the people whose names are in the opening credits, right? right. So the director, the writer, the producer. Because uh, my impression is that most of the stuff that shoots in Atlanta, putting aside commercials um, and corporate stuff or whatever, uh, most of the movies and TV that shoot in Atlanta are crewed by Atlanta people, but are written directed and produced by la people yeah i I think that's probably not wholly inaccurate um certainly like the tyler perry stuff is all out in atlanta but also the turner stuff is all out there so there's two pretty substantial hubs of production happening the turner campus is incredible it's giant it feels like paramount and there's a lot of green space there's a lot of like grass and it's kind of like um, yeah, it's like big beautiful. and open and beautiful and, and, um, you know, pretty great. And they had some state of the art sort of spaces there. Uh, so that's all great. But yeah, I will say the two times I've been out to Atlanta, I was flown out with a bunch of LA people to meet a bunch of New York people. And then we were supported by people who worked in Atlanta. Have we talked about the Atlanta, um, um, public access scene? No, is it? pretty cool dude it's incredible so when i was out for these jobs i didn't know anyone i was just hanging out in my hotel room basically and there's like no joke like 12 public access channels in atlanta and uh there's a show called star crash that i got obsessed with for a minute where it's all um it's a homemade sci-fi show that has been going on for years and years and they green screen in miniaturized backgrounds Mm -hmm. incredible like so it is the dream of like huh public access all right awesome anyway <laughs> atlanta great city i think it, and atlanta is not unlike any of these other kind of production hub cities right like vancouver right. toronto toronto to a lesser extent austin new york to an extent um there's obviously ones yeah, michigan michigan I mean Detroit or yeah, wherever you shoot uh, in Michigan. Louisiana. You know, there's there's places to shoot, and I think yeah. that you're there right. There are hot places, depending on tax credits, at any given right. time. Where you can have a good standard of living, you can probably afford a house, and there's there are actual jobs to be had. That being said, you're right. Like a lot of the above the line talent still is being sourced from New York and LA. Right. So the good things, Atlanta. I mean, sure. If you work in BTS, I imagine you'd get a ton of jobs. So BTS is behind the scenes. People that are shooting EPKs, right? Because there's so many big Hollywood productions there. They're not going to bring a behind the scenes team from LA. They'll probably right. hire a local. Also, on that tip, I think that you can maybe be a local commercial director and crew right. up and gear up a little bit easier than you would 
in a smaller market. Right. And you can right. especially cater to, um, you know, South and Midwest kind of clientele, like brands right. and, and companies. But have the infrastructure the and Coast. facilities of, um, of uh, Hollywood right. style production. Yeah. Resources, production resources. There's no doubt you have everything you need and more probably. Right. Um, but uh, yeah. And then commercials, it seems like a good town. And then any other crew position, if you want to, learn how a movie set works, work your way up, crew up. Uh, I have a friend that was a production designer on Neighbors 2, which, by the way, so Neighbors, the first Neighbors with Seth Rogen, Mm -hmm. was shot here in L.A. They built, you know, they shot at this giant, like, house. They had a frat house that was right next to this other giant house. Shooting in Atlanta was so cheap that it was cheaper for them to fly the entire crew over there Mm -hmm. uh, and rebuild the entire house from scratch than it was to shoot at the house in LA, the same it house built again. two houses from scratch. Oh, so two houses, yeah. Um, but it, it, I didn't hear this from that production designer, but I have heard that a lot of the crew is greener than the crew you find in LA because a, a lot of people, I think, start out in Atlanta, you know? Um, yeah. yeah, it's a good way to get probably, hours. It's probably changing, yeah. but I think that's what Diego is saying. There's a lot of opportunities there uh, to really learn about film, about filmmaking, meet crew, work your way up and also spend way less money on housing. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. So Atlanta is great. I'm sure uh, we will have people on from Atlanta in the future, or at least talk about working in Atlanta. I've never heard a bad story about working in Atlanta, only good ones. So yeah. So that's, that is another place that you could move to. I still think as a director, uh, if in building out your network of writers and directors and producers, there's kind of no easier place than here in Silver Lake, California. <laughs> um, but that's going from a guy that hasn't really spent much time doing that anywhere Live else. from Silver Lake, California. Yeah. Well, awesome. Well, thanks so much for writing uh, us with your questions. Uh, pl- we love the voicemails. If anyone is interested in leaving us one, please give us a call at one two six two six shoot one uh, and leave us your question. You can also email us at justshootitpod at gmail.com. You can tweet at us at justshootitpod on Twitter. Uh, and yeah, any feedback is is really great. So Leave us an iTunes review. We will read it on the air. That is the way to help this show grow and build out this community even more. Um, and you can check us out on Instagram at justshootitpod and me at Mr. Matt Enlow on both Instagram and Twitter. And me at Smitey Pileg. This episode was edited by Jay McAuliffe. Music was provided by the Free Music Archive and the artist Jazar. And our webmaster, as always, is the wonderful Ewan Williams. Thanks, Ewan. Thanks, everybody. Bye.